This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Einor Sawyer, and I'd like to welcome you to this evening's uh, Osher Mini Medical School, where we're going to be spending the evening together talking about space health. And I'm going to introduce myself and also my colleague who's with me and my course co-chair, Dr. Stephen Robinson. Uh, I'm the director of the UC Space Health Center in collaboration with Dr. Robinson and also the director of the Skeletal Health Service here at UCSF and have the good fortune of working in the environment of space health and remote medical management, which translates back to earth and and we'll give you a clear uh, picture of how that, how we believe that happens Um, My co-chair, I'm very honored to have with me tonight, he will be speaking to you later in the series. There's Dr. Stephen Robinson. He's a multi-mission astronaut. He's also the director of a really amazing space lab at UC Davis and a professor in mechanical and aerospace engineering. And Steve is going to share some stories with us uh, from his five missions in space, and he's going to entertain us and actually take any questions you have at the end of the talk. So I'll give a talk, and then we get to have a conversation uh, with Dr. Robinson. Okay, great. So let's jump right in. I'd like to dedicate tonight and actually the entire series that we're doing um, to our friend and mentor and colleague and an inspiration to so many of us, Dr. Millie Hughes-Fulford, who passed away at the beginning of February Uh, and none of us were ready for it. She wasn't ready. She was still doing research and also finishing manuscripts and had a project already slated to go up on the ISS in a few weeks with her collaborator, Dr. Sonia Schrepfer, who you'll meet later in the series. But Millie was uh, on a mission in June 1991. You can see her here, and she's actually laying the groundwork for much of what we know about human space flight and the, the risks to humans, and then all the research we've been building on top of that was really started on this mission, our ability to do biomedical studies. First woman to fly NASA as a payload specialist, a UCSF scientist who we were fortunate to have as a colleague for many years and a co-founder of the UC Space Health program that we'll talk about tonight. She also had a lab at the San Francisco VA and was doing research on cancer while undergoing cancer treatment and also in immunology. And her project that was about to launch, or will launch actually, is on immunosenescence or the aging model of the immune system that can be studied and understood better in microgravity. So dear Millie, thank you for guiding us and for inspiring us. So I have no disclosures to share with you. I have several roles that I do inside and outside the university, but I won't be presenting any company-specific information for which there would be any kind of conflict. I want to introduce you to the UC Space Health Program, or what we call UC SHIP. And this is a program uh, that has really been built to try to matrix the many creative space researchers and innovators across the UC system across 10 campuses, five medical centers, three national laboratories. We are flush with space researchers, but we haven't had our, our, uh, a network or a matrix organization in the past. So Dr. Robinson and I are working hard on creating that and, and expanding that. If you have an interest in this, please email either of us. We want to facilitate research and innovation, and we also want to advance remote medical management and self-health uh, for 
space benefit, but also to improve terrestrial health care. So we're going to talk tonight quite a bit about remote medical management. And many of us in the pandemic understand more about that, but my understanding of it started when I was a physical therapist doing home care, and I still do make house calls, but the need to support people in their own environments with innovative solutions in technology or personnel or process, um, and also the ability to understand how they function in their own environments with something we now call real-world evidence. So the ability to monitor and assess how people are functioning in their own environments versus our artificial tests in our own clinics. Also, remote medical management can be thought of as extreme uh, athletes in austere environments or austere environments uh, that you don't cho choose to be in as an athlete, um, such as doing work down in Antarctica, etc. And I used to think that this was the edge case for remote medicine, but I'll explain a little bit more about my journey in the last year or so, two years, sorry, in the last three years. Also, another area that we think about remote medical management uh, and distributed care models is in global health. And we have a very uh, active program here at UCSF, not, not just in global health, but in leveraging technologies and innovations around remote medical management. So we can work towards distributed but not diluted healthcare, giving the best we can uh, as far out as we possibly can. Most of us learned about remote medical management or non-contact uh, self-health and medical care through this pandemic. Uh, and this year has really highlighted the need for these capabilities and also highlighted the capacity we already have, but we may not be leveraging in terms of tech innovations that are out there. And this soon will help transform healthcare from these solutions being bolt-ons to actually being an integrated part of the tapestry of healthcare that includes the medical centers, but also the ability to manage remotely and support uh, individuals in their own environments. So in the past three years, I've spent quite a bit of time looking into the uh, realm of space health. I was invited to be the chief health innovation officer for a NASA-funded NASA innovation arm called the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. And I learned that space health is really the edge case of remote medical management, or some refer to it as the forcing function, such as in engineering, when you put the hardest case forward so you can learn the most about it. Uh, and so you'll hear tonight why we think space health uh, research and innovation is important and how it relates back to terrestrial healthcare. I have spent quite a bit of time uh, developing remote medical systems and leveraging telemedicine and got to work with the Australian Antarctic program where they've been doing this for 70 years, as you can imagine. It's a fantastic website if you're looking for interesting uh, and challenging problems around remote healthcare to investigate. I also have been involved for the last 15 years caring as an expedition medic for ocean rowers. They row in these six by 30, 23 foot rowboats unsupported across oceans for months. And we developed what we call satellite medicine and also really stretching remote medical capabilities. And their physiologic strains uh, are similar to astronauts, even the almost partial gravity effect they have because they're not weight-bearing for months at a time. So they come back kind of a cross between a prisoner of war and an astronaut, but they have very similar strains. And so this is also a bit of an analog, uh, as is Antarctica, uh, for looking at remote medical management and space health problems. So let's get into space here. 
If you look at the ISS, I'm going to orient you here a little bit about distance. The ISS sits in the low Earth orbit, which is hundreds of miles away from Earth. The moon, which we're going to probably have humans back on the moon in the next three to four years, that's hundreds of thousands of miles away from Earth. And then when you look at going to Mars, Mars is hundreds of millions of miles away from Earth. Those distances are really dramatic and create significant logistical challenges. And so you'll hear me talk more about that, but just to orient you and get a framework in your head for those distances. There are many significant challenges to the space environment in terms of a human functioning in the most healthy way possible. There's microgravity, which most of you know, zero gravity in the spacecraft, partly because of the motion of the spacecraft. But on the planetary surface of the moon, it's one-sixth gravity, and on Mars, it's three-eighths gravity. So those are things we need to consider if a person's been absolutely non-weight-bearing on the way to Mars, which could be up to a nine-month period, and then they have to weight-bear in partial gravity. We have to understand the demands that's going to place on them and how we get them ready for that. There are also altered pressure and air mixtures in space, very confined spaces, limited and altered movement patterns, Isolation is an extremely difficult uh, adaptation to make for some people, especially the longer the duration, the mission, um, and the distance from loved ones. And this is something where lessons from astronauts and how they coped with that and the technology technologies even that were derived to help cope with that played a role during the pandemic as we've all been in a similar situation. Um, There's constant danger and then there's also episodic danger that occurs in space and all the while the person is experiencing changes in their own body that are unfamiliar to them both physical and behavioral. So these are some of the challenges of the space environment to the human. Most of you realize and have heard many times there are several systems that are significantly impaired by being in microgravity or being in those confines and challenging environments of space. Most people have heard about bone loss and muscle loss, cardiovascular changes, neurovestibular changes, um, and even changes in sleep cycles, circadian rhythms, etc. And we really try hard to figure out what are those risks and how do we mitigate them? What kind of countermeasures can be developed? And the, the concern right now, as we're thinking about these longer and longer missions, is that we're using, mostly we're using information that is fairly generalized and not so individualized uh, in terms of what the countermeasures are. And we're getting it from generalized information around astronaut experience, but also from public health data with demographics that are astronaut-like type humans and looking at those responses However, it would be much, much better if we could actually get to the level where we could understand that individual and how they function and how they're responding to their environment. We're just scratching the surface on looking at the difference between female and male astronauts in the changes that we've been talking about here. So the goals for space uh, health, and many organizations work on this, including NASA's Human Research Program, Uh, Trish, as I mentioned before, the UC Space Health Center, and many other programs are working together collaboratively to optimize the human health in space. What we really need to do is we have to provide astronauts with the knowledge and the technology to enable them to maintain physical and behavioral health, 
to move from augmented to autonomous self-help and medical management, especially as we move towards deep space, I'll explain that further, and to mitigate from the hazards of space, particularly radiation and some of the other hazards uh, in terms of even the buildup of CO2. And the whole goal is to optimize crew health and safety and performance. And the ideal would be if we could do that at the level of the individual Obviously, through all of this, we want to be returning lessons back to Earth, or uh, rather than a return on investment, it's a return on Earth. I'm calling it, I've created a term called the ROE in, in all of this investment that we're doing. And as you can tell, uh, it, these people are very different. This is the current crew that's up there. Some of you will recognize Kate Rubin. She's actually a Northern California person and, and has UC roots, and we're very excited that she's up on her second mission. Uh, but these, are, these people are very different from each other, and so will be their responses and also their pre-flight pre, uh, risks that they're bringing in, possibly even from family history um, and, and early life exposures. So the human research program works very hard to understand the risks to humans in space, to develop countermeasures, to develop new tools and technologies to provide a safe environment and a safe experience for human space exploration. They do this with a lot of data and they integrate data from many, many places, including medical data sets that we get from clinical environments or occupational surveillance and also operational and logistical spacecraft information, which Steve is really the expert in and, and my counterpart in this research data that's been taken on board the space station or from ground analogs and also terrestrial data, as I mentioned before, using uh, trying to match astronaut type uh, individuals. And then we also look at the astronaut data, but there's small ends. There are only a few hundred astronauts, but we do try to take into account that information. The problem is there hasn't been very uh, detailed and comprehensive continuous monitoring of the astronauts in space. There are many science projects that go on and many spot checks, et cetera, but we're hoping to create a, a health sensing matrix so we could have a much better understanding of what's happening to that astronaut as they're changing over time. And of course, to give actionable insights. There are also retired data sets that we use and health and human performance data sets, et cetera. And these are being built out. And as I mentioned before, analogs such as Antarctic or the deep, uh, deep sea analogs uh, or high altitude analogs are used to generate data as well. So they used to actually look at everything condition by condition or system by system, very segregated. But as we know, our bodies are very integrated uh, not just the physical systems, but our physical and mental uh, systems are integrated as well. So they started regrouping these specific hazards or conditions under groups of hazards. So altered gravity field, I talked to you about the severity of that, radiation, distance from Earth, isolation, and the hostile environment uh, and closed environment of the spacecraft design. So just to look at distance from Earth as an example, the adverse uh, health outcomes and, and decrements in performance due to the, the distance from Earth over time. So the longer an astronaut is in that environment uh, and in a microgravity environment specifically, those problems of bone loss, muscle loss, um, and changes to the cardiovascular system, neuro, neurologic system, fluid shifts, the longer they're in that environment, the more at risk they are to untoward consequences from that. 
Um, and so that's one way they've shifted the model a bit to get a cross-disciplinary approach is by grouping by hazard and looking at conditions across that. Let's just take an example, fluid shifts in space. Most people know that in microgravity, there is a, a big shift in fluids towards the head. Uh, we tend to have most of our fluids down in our legs as long as we're standing. And that changes, of course, when we lie down. But it's so well known that they actually have nicknames for things. This is Peggy Whitson, who's NASA's most experienced astronaut to date, longest total mission days. And here she is on Earth very lean and fit. And here she is in space when the fluids have shifted cephalad or towards her head. And it's actually called puffy face and the legs get very skinny. So it's chicken legs and puffy face, very scientific, as you can see. But the understanding of it is really important. And not only does it cause congestion up in the chest and head and neck area, it changes the shape and size of the heart. Um, but you also have um, other significant problems in terms of just uh, venous stasis, where the blood flow doesn't just slow down, but we found that it actually reverses and can, can, can cause clots. And one clot was identified in an astronaut in space. And so these understandings that we get by studying these shifts on board in mission are really valuable. Much of the studies have been done pre and post mission. So we're driving hard to get more in mission tools. Um, the fluid shifts are interesting also to understand because at some point there are adaptive mechanisms the body has. So on Earth, your fluids look like this. As you go into space, the leg fluids move up towards the head. But when the heart and the head sense that, it signals a pathway to suddenly tell you to start peeing. You've got too much fluid on board. It doesn't understand that you're missing fluid down here. It just reads as too much fluid. And that's where these big sensors are. And it just tells you to start peeing off all this fluid. So that's what happens. It's called diuresis. So across the rest of the mission, and this stabilizes around six weeks into the mission, but across the rest of the mission, you're, you're low volume effectively. You don't perceive it. But if you suddenly were to land, all the blood would pool in your legs and you don't have enough volume to keep uh, awareness in your brain. So you would pass out. It's called orthostatic hypotension. So right before landing, they do try to fluid resuscitate, even give IV fluids or drink a lot of fluids. And, uh, and some other countries are using negative pressure pants to try to change the fluid dynamics before landing and prepare them for that. Because that orthostatic hypotension compounds the neurovestibular disturbances that happen being motionless, I mean, being microgravity in space. So very difficult for an astronaut to land and then try to walk. And these are things we have to think about when they're going out to do long missions where there's actually going to be planetary surface work. So this point of adaptation occurs at different times for different astronauts, but generally the fluid one is around six weeks. And so they reach a new steady state. In fact, several of the systems, even the red cell mass, which changes, sort of levels out in that window. There are some systems that keep uh, deteriorating or having the negative consequences. One of them is bone. And to be honest, that one hasn't plateaued, no matter what countermeasures we do, resistive exercise, even medication. So we're very concerned about that one because the data we have is only up to six months. We have a little bit of data on a couple of individuals who have done one-year missions. But beyond that, 
our data is limited temporally, but most of the Mars missions will be more in a time frame of three years. So it's very uncertain what's going to happen with these systems over time and also what the recovery potential will be from much longer missions. So looking again at this example of the different distances from space of low Earth orbit, ISS, Moon, and Mars. Some very important things to think about logistically. First of all, in the low Earth orbit, we have the luxury of basically having continuous access to Earth, to mission control. So we really are doing a type of telemedicine or teleinteractions in terms of medical management. Here's an example of doing some images of the eye, but they're not really being read or interpreted in space. They're being read remotely at mission control by the flight surgeons and the information being pushed back up in case a lot of these are for science, but some of them are for medical diagnostics. We have live monitoring of astronauts. Even the EVA uh, missions are live monitored by mission control. And Steve has some interesting stories about that uh, when he was captain of a couple of the missions. And we also have store and forward capabilities. So you're getting live input, live communication, but you can also save records and send them. Uh, anytime you want, basically, because there's synchronous communication. As we move away from low Earth orbit into these greater distances, we're going to change how we relate to Earth. We're going to move. This is Earth reliant in ISS. We're going to move out to the to Moon, where there may be periods on the backside of the Moon where it's asynchronous communication, but certainly distance and duration makes it more challenging to send resupplies, et cetera. So that'll be a proving ground. And then Mars is going to be autonomous. And I'll show you what I mean by that. So on Earth, you can replace equipment. We just send it up. We're having more and more flights from the commercial flight capabilities that are available to us now. You can replace personnel. You can get sick personnel out of there. Uh, and so that's a really important thing to know. That's Earth-reliant model. When we move to the moon, we're going to be shifting gears. We're going to try to repair more things. We're going to do more additive manufacturing. We're going to try to recycle more of the consumables than we are already. And then for Mars, got to manufacture things. You've got to actually have autonomous systems, closed-loop systems that don't require synchronous communication. And that's especially true for self-help and medical management. So again, down here in Mars, no real-time communications, no evacuation and consumable re resupply. So no evacuation is important in a medical model. From the ISS right now, the bottom of the list for the medical docs is if it just, the condition is worse and worse and not responding, the bottom of the list is deorbit. Get them back home, get them into a hospital bed, and that can happen within two days. It's very, very, very possible to get someone out of there. That is going to be harder from the moon and not at all possible for Mars. So that changes how we develop a medical plan for deep space. And we have to move from something I call the from augmented to autonomous or A to A health and medical management. The, the goals around medical management and space health, we really want to maintain optimal health and function, crew health and safety. We want to look for early deflections from optimal baselines and try to react to them early and recognize and diagnose early if there is an illness or an injury and restore optimal function as quickly as possible. And to do that, it's going to require something that we've nicknamed the precision space health continuum. Because you can imagine to get to that point, it's also got to be very individualized. I'm going to just lead into this section with a discussion about Hippocrates, not a long one, I promise you. But 
I didn't realize that there's actually a lunar crater named after Hippocrates. So that was actually entertaining when I was intersecting Hippocrates in my medical career into the space health work. But one of the reasons I'm fascinated by Hippocrates is this statement way, way, way back when. It's far more important to know what person the disease has than what disease the person has. And that really is the underpinning of precision medicine. So like I said, these people aren't the same. And even in missions a long, long time ago, in the olden days, when Dr. Robinson was flying, the people weren't the same. There was still a lot of diversity uh, across the mission crew then. Uh, That was a little joke. I'm going to hear about it later, I'm sure. And then this has led us to a model of the precision space health continuum. If you follow me here on this journey, you know, as an individual, your body moves from wellness to illness and back again. We're constantly going across this continuum, but your data and your devices don't move with you. And that's a real challenge. So what we're looking, it it keeps us from actually having this type of a continuum model that's very functional. You experience it and your body moves across it, but your data doesn't move with you. So if you could be aware of the optimal state of wellness and pick up on an early deflection from that, a physiologic or a biometric difference Maybe you're a little underhydrated. Maybe you're a little fatigued and your resting heart rate has started to elevate, but you don't perceive it. If you can pick up on it here and make a corrective action, then you can get back and right the ship and you're back into your top performance. Otherwise, there's a possibility you would deteriorate down a clinical path. This is going to require integrated data and devices in a way that we don't have it currently. But whether you're an astronaut and you're, you're performing your tasks or you're exercising on the ARAD or you're actually out, out of the craft at an EVA, if you have that kind of information or those type of, quote, oil gauges so you could sense what's going on with your body before you could actually experience it, you have a chance to do prevention, early correction and prevention. But it's going to require this action, this sensing and the window of opportunity here where we're looking at deflections, where you're asymptomatic. We hear a lot about asymptomatic COVID-infected patients. They don't even know it, but we're getting better and better at putting together suites of sensors uh, that can actually predict or detect that that person is getting infected before they even are aware of it. Even slight increases in resting respiratory rate are becoming sensitive indicators of early infection, even before the O2 saturation drops. So the COVID models that we've been building are going to be really helpful going on into managing uh, illness across Earth and across space. So let's move forward and give a real example of this. If you had an experience of underhydration before it became dehydration and you correct that, you're on your way. But if you let it go further and it becomes dehydration, you begin to get nausea, vomiting, you can't take in water, you you get more dehydrated, you move into what's called renal insufficiency. That increases your risk for forming renal stones and renal uh, urinary tract infections and eventually renal failure, which may be reversible or irreversible. These are all conditions of concern, all things that are possible and have happened in space. So we're working on this. We actually see this in community medicine. We see this in our ocean rowers. So this isn't a way out there idea of a use case. This is one that we think is gonna be really important for us. 
And we want to start with a use case. We don't want to start with all the sensors in the world. We want to start with a use case that's very specific where we can do a proof of concept on this. But to get across this health continuum and to drive it, you need a health sensing matrix. You've got to be able to have awareness. You need a suite of sensors on the human and the, in the environment so you see what they're responding to. And maybe you can anticipate ahead of time if you see an increasing level of CO2 or increasing cabin temperature. And then analysis. We have to use very elaborate computational sciences, uh, including the terms you've heard a lot, uh, AI, machine learning, neural networks, natural language processing. And then you want to have action. So awareness, analysis, and action. And these are going to need to be fairly automated and al algorithmically driven actionable insights that go back to the individual, go to the chief medical officer, the crew medical officer, go to the captain of the crew, and go to mission control, even if that part's asynchronously. And NASA's nicknamed this detecting, deciding, and doing. This needs to be a closed loop when we're talking about Mars. And it could very much benefit remote medical settings on Earth if we could develop more and more of these closed loop processes. I'm not going to read all of this, but these are really the underpinnings of this health sense matrix I'm talking about. It's an integrated and comprehensive suite of sensors that measure person generated data and measure environment generated data and intersect those and then also intersect medical diagnostics and prior history, et cetera. So we get a full picture of what's happening with the individual. These sensors for the human are gonna be contact, non-contact, audible, wearable, implantable, vibration, radio. There's so many sensor capabilities that we're seeing develop now that we, we could bring to bear on this equation. The main thing is they need to be non-intrusive, very reliable, validated at several levels and uh, and, and they need to be integrated. And that's going to be really important. So non-intrusive and integrated and, and generate meaningful, actionable insights. And we can't forget all these things, privacy, security, et cetera. So they're all in here. But the main thing is, how is this going to benefit the user? How are they going to tolerate it? And uh, how do we keep adapting it? Because this is going to be a learning system. They're going to change. Their body's going to change. Their baseline changes. And their environment's going to be changing. And not only that, but the data sets we use to develop a lot of the algorithms will also be evolving over time. And then we'll push this information back to the users in very user-specific ways. So looking at this term of interoperability, this is the key to the whole thing. It's not going to help us to stick a zillion different sensors on people and they get bits of data or points of information that they can't integrate into a, a meaningful, actionable insight of you need to drink more water and actually you need it to be this concentration. So looking at this health sensing matrix, uh, I think the main thing to talk about is we are going to have to try to work on what's called a local area network rather than using the cloud or a lot of the satellites that you keep hearing about going up there. We need to be able to rely on the spacecraft as a local area network.
And we've got to build these concentric circles of these networks. So the spacecraft with the human in the, in the, in the crew inside, that's a network. As that individual says, I'm, I'm a due for an EVA, we want the network to be able to expand out and include the EVA. So that'll be another aspect of that land or local area network. And then as they arrive to the moon or Mars and do planetary service work, we want that to be another concentric ring on that local network. So we can create closed loop processes across those environments. And of course, there's a big loop down to mission control, even if it's asynchronous. And then the other is we want this integrated across time. We want to integrate these health systems about this individual across time. So pre-mission data, in-mission data, post-mission data, and on into retirement. So we get a full sense of what's happening to this individual. It's much like what we're trying to do in healthcare now, where we're looking at models of health and wealth across the lifespan. And these are very exciting models that are being built. So this is going to require not just patient-generated data and sensing, environmental data and sensors, but also really creative and forward-thinking power capabilities, wireless power transfer, low power and low battery requirement for these devices, and actually self-powering devices. There are people working on sensors where the environment on the skin, whether it's a change in the ions or the temperature uh, or even vibration, is actually creating power and generating uh, fuel for the sensors that they're, they're wearing. There are many technologies out there that could be deployed if we could validate them better. A lot of the wearable sensors are giving us health information, but unfortunately the standards of building these wearables for the consumer uh, have not been really well regulated. So we're working on trying to get more validation on the wearables so that health information is not just useful to you, but Believe me, astronauts do wear uh, devices up there for their own tracking um, and, and in hopes that there will be a comprehensive system like this coming. But we want these devices to be well validated. So we cross calibrate these against our human performance center. But just to know that's one of the issues with these devices. It's getting better. And I think we'll see more of it moving towards the level of these medical grade devices and this, these are ones that are FDA approved, and we know we can count on that information for decision making. Um, and we want to move closer to integrate medical devices with the, the health activity and uh, individual consumer wearable devices. There are medical grade devices that are looking more like our, our Fitbits, uh, our, our devices that we consider consumer grade. This is Again, I have no special interest in any company, but this is a very comprehensive, integrated, multi-parametric sensing device that can give you skin temperature, extrapolate core temperature, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, cough, sneeze, and even position sense and motion. And this is a device that's being looked at, uh, as are some of the other multi-parametric sensors, in really doing early detection and prediction of uh, COVID-19. And so this is just an example of something like this that's a small footprint, very tolerable. This lasts for 30 days and it's got an adhesive uh, patch that you can replace if it gets loose. This is the, the smaller brother called the bio button. This is the bio sticker. And these are now FDA approved and uh, very exciting capabilities that we're starting to leverage more and more in healthcare, but also looking at how this would fit, fit into a health sensing matrix. 
But again, we need to integrate not just physiologic and vitals, but we need to also incorporate oftentimes uh, biometric data at the level of laboratory data. This is just an example of an implantable device that's actually gonna be able to detect electrochemical changes and pick up on electrolyte and other types of lab tests. And then there are some very small and portable uh, lab systems now that are being leveraged and these micro array, excuse me, micro arrays with nanochannels, et cetera. Some of these are even 3D printable. So these capabilities are expanding rapidly and we need to figure out how to integrate them in a purposeful way. We even need to get better at doing precision nutrition and hydration on board, not just giving uh, the the kind of a group overview of here's what you should, we think you need these many calories, we think you need this much exercise. And they do a lot of tremendous exercise uh, study and physiology leading up to uh, launching, but that individual changes dramatically in mission. So I'm not saying they're not trying to make these personalized programs to start with, but as that individual changes, they don't have insights onto what's happening with that person. How is their metabolic rate changing and what should be their nutritional uh, and their exercise demands to create the ideal energy balance? So there used to be big rooms where we would do these types of studies, but now it's gotten down to face masks and this face mask has gotten even smaller. So now this is a, a metabolic rate assessment instead of a large room with lots of carts and this is another example of it. So our tools are getting smaller and smaller so we can get in mission capabilities. Now to get at precision nutrition and exercise, you also wanna know how much they're losing in their fat mass, in their muscle mass. Can we detect fluid shifts from the outside and even bone mass eventually? And this is John Shepard's work, University of Hawaii, where he's taking off the shelf 3D cameras and with the capability of AI, creating algorithms and validating against the gold standard of bone densitometry. Many of you have had those studies done to look for osteoporosis, but that's the gold standard for looking at body composition. So he's creating models that are going to be able to use, be used in mission with just small off-the-shelf 3D cameras and smart processes on top of it. There are also ways that smart processes are being used to predict way downstream a person's capabilities. So by integrating data around fatigue, sleep patterns, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, those types of things, there are algorithms that can tell 10 days to two weeks out if you're going to have a significant fatigue episode that might make it risky for you to do a certain type of activity or job. And these are being leveraged in aviation and truck drivers and miners. And this type of risk prediction for fatigue can help assign, can help the, the captain assign who would be ideal for the EVA, who might be at risk and actually indicate corrective measures to do along the way to change that predictive curve. We're also looking for really uh, non-contact or passive sensing capabilities. This is a robot called Simon that circulated up there and uh, observed many things, but you can with just looking at movement patterns of a person doing their actual job, not assessing for a specific thing, but just in their work patterns and their uh, reaction time, et cetera, you can start picking up on patterns that may be indicative of fatigue or even neurologic or cognitive decline. So this is really important that we leverage all the capabilities we can, including genomics. 
If we start adding genomics capabilities into the risk prediction model, that will really help with individualization, uh, decision-making, but also resource allocation. Um, this is an example of something very exciting. Dr. Charles Shu from UCSF, combined with his collaborator, Kate Rubens, I mentioned before, did the first genomics experiments in space. And they're looking at changes in the microbiome that occur in space with different astronauts combined, et cetera, that can have significant implications. This just also says we've got to look beyond just digital type things in, in terms of information systems and look at this, the ability to do additive manufacturing or capabilities for resupply or replenishment, medical instruments, replace parts that might have broken, but also looking towards the same thing with pharmaceuticals, because over the time that it takes to get to Mars and with the amount of radiation exposure that's going to occur once you get outside of lower Earth orbit and those protective zones, more radiation is going to be a consideration, galactic cosmic radiation and solar flares. That is very hard to consider when we're trying to send fragile base compounds or fragile medications up there that may have a, a certain uh, shelf life on earth, but when exposed to radiation could certainly deactivate uh, those compounds. So the idea of sending stable base compounds and then compounding them up there and printing 3D printing pharmaceuticals uh, and personalizing the type of medication that an individual might need based on the risk prediction model you've been able to develop with them over time. Those are all capabilities that are being looked at. NASA's looking at this very intensely, looking for ways to integrate information. Uh, the XMC group uh, with Dr. Chris Linhart and the um, group at Ames looking at the medical data architecture, clinical decision support, looking at how to integrate all this information. And all of that, not just for medical and health, has to be integrated into the space information systems as well. So understanding how the pieces fit inside each other in terms of IT are also very important. Um, so I just want to point out that this is very much along the lines of what we're doing on Earth. We're trying to remote, uh, pr sorry, enable remote medical management. And this, we believe, if we can allow people in their homes to have gauges like they do for their car, so when they're not sensing something, they could have a message that says, by the way, your resting heart rate's staying elevated day after day, you may be you may be fatigued, or you may be getting an early infection, or you may be underhydrated, etc. Getting those signals that we can't perceive ourselves right now could really keep us out of this episodic crisis management of health conditions. Um, and it could also move us towards full recovery as we move through a health crisis, uh, and also prevent recurrence of the condition. And so this is a very important concept we're working on. Decision health continuum, very much like what we're talking about in space, pick up on early deflections, prevent clinical deterioration, uh, and restore back to optimal states. We've got a lot of capabilities. This is what I call the panome. We've got the genome, the phenome, the microbiome, the transcriptome, and way out at the back here with all our computer capabilities, we've got something I've nicknamed the phonome, because we have so much information available to us in the palm of our hand. So integrating in a meaningful way these types of processes is very important. It requires, though, a knowledge network, which is being an example of this is being built out at UCSF, combining basic science, clinical data, social data, 
and all the omics and the digital health and informatics. This is just to say this work is being done on Earth. There are great examples. This is an ICU example of integrating disparate data streams to decrease the seven highest causes of morbidity in the ICU. These are data streams that were not previously integrated. And I mean from the machines in the ICU to the laboratory, to the images, to the patient's physical exam. They came together for about five minutes in the intern's head when they were presenting, but there wasn't an integrated use of that information other than uh, in that manner, in a manual manner. So this is a very exciting project, uh, a collaboration between UCSF and Johns Hopkins. Uh, there are several examples here, but I think rather than go through each of them, just know that there are examples of this on Earth. Omada Health is a good example. They started out trying to prevent pre-diabetics from becoming diabetics by integrating data streams such as weight and integrating capabilities such as, so, so to include uh, weight, girth measurements, and then giving intersection and activity data, and then giving interventions of exercise, nutrition, stress management, and sleep. And they had significant benefits that they were able to demonstrate in diabetes. So they've now actually ported this capability of integrating data streams and giving actionable insights across five other chronic disease states. So very similar streams of data can give you insights across multiple conditions. And that's what we're banking on for the health sensing matrix for space. I'm going to keep moving, but this just shows you that the military is using a very similar concept in their health continuum from injury and integrating data all the way across from initial trauma station to the pickup to the medevac, back to the main medical hospital, eventually through rehab, and perhaps back to military service or to another non-military career. But it's the integration of data that's making that possible. So the precision health continuum, whether you're a patient in the hospital, whether you're an athlete trying to improve performance, you're a healthcare worker in a pandemic trying to make sure you're safe to go on duty, or you actually have a critical duty at mission control in a pandemic, making sure you're healthy enough to go in and not contaminate the other mission control workers, all of those settings, or a person at home trying to manage their own health or an astronaut, active or retired, could all benefit from this type of concept. And I just put this screen up to show you it's complicated, it's multifaceted, we've got to integrate data from many different streams, but we've got to remember the center of it is not the medical center, but it's the, it's the person. This is a very person-centered and individualized approach. But it will get us to this concept of informed health, which is getting the right information at the right time to make the right choice or to enable someone to make the right choice and get the best outcome. Whether it's in a critical care or operating room setting or the middle of an ocean or taking a walk outside of the ISS, which uh, you're gonna learn a lot about from Dr. Steve Robinson. So I really wanna thank my collaborators and my supporters and I really especially wanna thank the audience for your attention and the Osher Center for this opportunity. Um, and at this point, it's a great honor to introduce Dr. Steve Robinson, uh, my colleague, my friend, my mentor, uh, and my partner in, in these crazy activities we're doing. Um, I've only put a few images up here because I know he's got stories to tell tonight as well as uh, you'll meet him again on the 10th. But I'd like to turn it over right now to Dr. Robinson. Well, Dr. Sawyer, that was amazing. I learned a lot of things I didn't know before. Thanks so much. Um, and for the nice introduction. And um, 
Yes, it was a long time ago when I was flying in space, but uh, <laughs> it was about 10 years ago was the last time. Uh, I worked for NASA for uh, 37 years, and 17 of those years I, I spent as an astronaut. But, but now I'm having my dream job. I'm working at UC Davis as a research uh, manager and a professor, and uh, it's a wonderful place to be. I think, okay, first of all, this is just a trailer for my real appearance on March 10th with uh, Dr. John Clark, who's an amazing person. And uh, I'll be his uh, opening act, maybe your backup band. <laughs> and uh, uh, so today, maybe we'll just, um, since we haven't met you, the audience, there's 15 of you, um, maybe, maybe hear from you of your curiosities or why you're here, kind of things you're interested in hearing about. You've got a, you've got a world-class uh, medical professional and you've got a guy who has flown to space and knows how to play banjo. So if your questions overlap that Venn diagram in any way, let's hear from you. You're talking to a, a multi-mission astronaut who's also an engineer. And Steve, it, it would be interesting if, if it's okay with you, if I could ask you a couple of questions. Um, you're going to get into more of this on March 10th, but I'm curious of the things that we talked about tonight, which is the vision of where we want to get to. Um, what types of things do you wish you had had up there in order to maintain an awareness of your own, your own physical status? Would that have been useful to you? Yes, I think so. Um, and that is something we look at in, in my research lab, too, is how, what kind of information real time or, or, you know, at least not very old information can you feed back to a person who's performing often something that not only they have never done before, but nobody has. So what do they need to know? How, how dangerous is it? How do you try to do something for the very first time in the human race? Not un, un, unusually. How do we do that um, in a safe way? And uh, now we have more tools than we had. You've just heard about all of the, the um, medical data integration efforts that are going on. Modern uh, technology for sensor systems, small, cheap, um, disposable, sometimes reusable. Um, and then especially data systems, software for mining data, looking for patterns, developing models for looking into the future. But how do we integrate something like that? If I have software that I call hmm, machine learning, maybe I'll call it a, a class of artificial intelligence. How do I integrate that with me, the astronaut, working to do something on, the, on Mars, the first crew to Mars? So these are these are the research questions um, that we think are important. And uh, Mr. Webb um, asked about what work is being done about emotional social health on a three-year Mars mission. Interactions between crew members will be essential to a, a successful mission. Well, yes, absolutely, of course. And um, I think anybody considering a long road trip with people that you know well but not perfectly, and you know very well that things are going to go wrong, and you know it's going to be very dangerous. You're counting on your road trip mates for your life, and they're counting on you for their life. Imagine the potential stressors and tensions that come come along from that. So, it's a it's something we don't know very much about, really. We don't really understand how to choose exactly the right person to deal with that kind of kind of uh, challenge. The isolation, the sameness. You know, one of the things I really realized from being on the International Space Station was, yeah, you're living in a can, you know. And it seems a little isolated and seems kind of antiseptic and you just see the same people over and over and over. 
but you have this window when you look through that window and you see home and, and, and your, you know, your favorite planet is changing constantly. And it's so, it's, it's, it's just so spiritual and artistic and, and, and um, comforting to see that. Well, if you're on your way to Mars, you don't get that. So what you see out the window is basically the same, which is just looks like the night sky. So how do you get that sense of, of comfort um, when, when you are isolated in a dangerous environment? Steve, that's a really, I, I was going to follow up on your comments there with a couple of examples. So uh, in Antarctica, uh, especially the Australian Antarctic sites, they're the only ones left that are purely isolated for nine months. So they've become a real interesting analog for Mars that extreme isolation and separation from family and, um, and, and extreme conditions, the danger, et cetera. Um, so there are a lot of studies they've done down there, not just on individual behavioral sciences, but team dynamics. And they're really interested in, in the team dynamics, selecting for a team, but also then how do you manage and modulate a team when dynamics are changing, perhaps in a negative way. So there's some interesting articles out of the Antarctic for that. And then one of your colleagues, Jay Bucky, has been doing some interesting work uh, around uh, behavioral sciences using virtual reality. And he's done some of his testing down in the Australian Antarctic sites. But a lot of those techniques, uh, whether they were with some sort of a technology or they were actually meditative techniques, whatever, became really helpful during the pandemic. And there were several astronauts who were sharing their coping mechanisms, so to speak. Um, but, but as we spoke about integrating these sensors, we're going to be combining quantitative with qualitative information because it really does matter hugely how a person is experiencing uh, and perceiving their experience. So uh, that will feed into the behavioral health intersecting with the physical health. You know, one, one of the things you have to rely on is that um, people who are on a, on a mission like this for that long are going to learn things about team psychology and individual psychology that they didn't ever know before. So does that mean they should learn something about um, indicators, psychological indicators, even if they have a background of, say, being a test pilot or something like that? I, I would say yes, yes, indeed. Another thing I noticed is everybody who becomes an astronaut partially gets there by being a fairly competitive person because uh, it's extremely competitive to get such a job and it's competitive to kind of do well and keep the job. Um, what I've noticed is so far in space that um, astronauts are generally very motivated and encouraged to co uh, cooperate and collaborate all the time. But there hasn't been organized competition and uh, this has led to some really bad zero gravity games <laughs> because people just need to be competitive. Oh, gosh, so you, don't, you really don't want to let astronauts get on the list quite, quite to that degree. Here's a question from uh, uh, Ms. Battelle. In addition to monitoring and collecting data, are we developing actions that can be taken when things go wrong? Oh gosh, that is the question. That is the question. The first part of that question is, how do you know when something's going wrong? You're flying serial number one of a very complicated machine, and you may be the first person ever to be where you are right now. And something looks different than your training in your simulation. Is it different just because 
you're in the real thing now, and that's in real life. It's very different than what, what can be simulated on Earth, where you're really seeing some sort of degradation and early warning. So that's one of the big deals is trying to identify, is there an impending failure? And if so, is it just one thing that broke or is some sort of cascading thing that's about to get worse? As a flight engineer on the space shuttle, my job was always to ask, no, not only what just went wrong, but what's the worst thing that could happen next? And how do we try to avoid that? Mm. Well, I'll respond to that from the, the health and medical side. That is the whole point of actually doing the monitoring and collecting the data is to drive an actionable insight. And so collecting the information, very helpful. And if we were just doing research projects, which is primarily what's been happening, then you can get it back to Earth and interpret it later. But these astronauts are going to need the information real time in a closed loop fashion, they won't be able to send information back to mission control. I'm talking about the ones going for long duration moon and particularly Mars. So the whole point is actually to generate actions and give those actions back to the individual so that they can do something about it. And I I gave the example of hydration a few times, but the same thing with sleep. and other other types of things, nutrition, if their energy balance is off. So that's it's a great question, and it's exactly the purpose. The main shift in this is getting it into a closed-loop fashion, and that's where we've got to leverage, leverage computational sciences. So we can sense, we can interpret, and then drive an action, and then hopefully the person will do the action, and then we sense again to see if that corrected things. One of the things along those lines that um, that UC Davis is working with NASA on is um, when you go out and do a spacewalk, you're less in a suit and more in a spacecraft. That mm-hmm. suit that you're in has many functions to keep you alive, and uh, you have to sort of live within that little spacecraft. And it, it's it's uh, it's difficult work. It is very very physically demanding. Um, one of the reasons is the suit is inflated. It's the vacuum outside. It's about 4.3 PSI on the inside. And every time you move at all, it takes a fair amount of muscular effort. When you're out there for six, seven, eight hours, um, you've had a big day at the gym. Mm. Problem is you can't stop and take a bite. You know, there's no no snacks or anything like that. So you go out with a certain amount of um, caloric energy in your body, a certain battery charge in your body. And you really don't know the rate at which you're using your own energy, especially early on when you're not an expert space mm-hmm. worker. So we're developing uh, technology to feed back, to measure and feed back the metabolic rate to the astronaut in the suit so they can use kind of a biofeedback strategy to, um, to plan out their energy expenditure as they go. So Because it is not unusual for astronauts to get extremely fatigued during the spacewalk. Mm-hmm. And the more fatigued you are, the more at risk you are. I'm just going to clarify, Steve, in case uh, the audience missed it. Uh, Steve was talking about the spacewalks that we get to see the fantastic footage of now. Um, when you're outside the craft, you're, I never have thought of the suit itself as a mini spacecraft, but I get it from you now. Um, but I have heard from Kate that it's exhausting when Kate Rubens was telling me, and you come in and you sleep for seven or eight hours, that it, it, it's just a tremendous workout. I guess if you have the opportunity to sleep you would but I, I your description is so interesting that you're working against resistance the whole time 
Well, it's a number of things. It's that there's, um, you know, you train underwater. And first of all, you're, you're essentially weightless. Um, you're not really, you're, when you're in low Earth orbit, you're falling all the time, but it's as if you were, you were in a zero gravity environment. So um, in a situation like that, you do have mass. And the mass of that suit, plus you, plus all the equipment, if you were to weigh yourself with all that stuff on the ground, you would be close to 700 pounds. So imagine moving a 700 pound mass around with your hands and your arms only. You don't really use your feet. Doing that for seven hours. So on top of that, it's extremely demanding in terms of cognitive demands. I'll give you an example. When you're wearing this inflated glove, your tactile sense is almost gone. So when you're doing something small and fine, like maybe putting on a bottle cap or something like that, you don't do that out there, but um, you do it almost entirely by touch. So your fine motor control feedback is a lot of it is um, uh, modulated by tactile feedback, tactile sensory input. When that's gone, what do you do? You replace it with, with visual sensory feedback. Well, that now you to do that in training, you have to develop entirely neural new neural pathways, and that drives you to be have body positions and lighting to be able to see things into your hands that you never had to do before. So, a spacewalk is like being at the gym all day long while you're in a chess tournament, and you you come in tired. Wow. I I see an, a next question here that uh, we can both take turns on this. Uh, David Fisher, what are the innovations in space medicine? What what are I think it means what innovations in space medicine have practical applications on Earth? You would be absolutely surprised how many things you're using just in daily life, but also that we use in healthcare that came out of space science. And I think we ought to start creating decals um, that it's like space science is how you got this. So MRI is a great example of that. Um, and there are many insulin pumps, scratch resistance lenses, scratch, scratch resistant lenses, um, even firefighting equipment, uh, LASIK surgery, shock absorbers for buildings, and of course, solar cells. But even some of the miniaturization and uh, of motors that and actuators that drive artificial limbs have come out of space science and, and uh, inventions that were developed for NASA. I'm sure you can think of some as well, Steve. Miniaturization of electronics, yeah. communications over reliable communications over long distance, um, mm -hmm. all kinds of display technology um, that includes the, the the human. We've learned a lot about how humans interact with with um, uh, machinery through some sort of interface. Um, a lot of that has been pioneered in the the, the high risk arena of space, and then. Uh, adapted to different types of applications on Earth, say airliners or medical operating rooms. Oh, robotics. Robotics, <laughs> yes. Tons of robotics, yeah. And you're going to learn about, uh, from some of our other presenters, you're going to learn about experiments that are done in space because they can occur faster in microgravity that directly benefit Earth. A lot of the science done up there isn't done to benefit the astronauts. Ironically, a lot of the work they're doing is done to benefit Earth. You'll hear from Dr. Tammy Chang next week 
on how she's developing three-dimensional organoids uh, because it grows faster in microgravity. So there are a lot of examples that, that weren't just designed for space medicine, but some of them are. The miniaturization and this rapid turnaround closed-loop process is being driven by these needs in space. One example is looking at ultrasound equipment. It's gotten down so small so that you have a small transducer and you actually use an iPhone for visualization. So that those types of really miniaturizing diagnostics tools are coming out of a drive for space. Um, and then add to that interpretation in space rather than pushing down to mission control and coming back. And then you get to the full closed loop or autonomous process. All right. Uh, Anonymous has asked another question here. That's a good one for you. Oh, I didn't read it yet. What is the difference in how humans and animals would be affected by space travel? How can developing technologies based on effects of space traveling on animals be translated to humans or vice versa? So even on earth, we first we do a lot of our experimentation first uh, on bench science or on cells, and then we move up to small animals and larger animals before we get to human. And a lot of that is around safety and efficacy. Um, and yes, there's a lot of information that's being gathered on animals in space. I think you've probably seen many scientific projects uh, that use mice in space. Um, and Sometimes it's easier to get information faster because you can have larger populations. You can only have so many astronauts up there at once, but you can have quite a few mice. And so a lot of the bone unloading and reloading um, interventions that we've learned around bone changes in space, we have learned in the mice models. And then they do have to be extrapolated in further studies, validating those assumptions or those concepts in humans. But it's a very classic model, and, and actually much of our medical knowledge today was derived out of the first studying it on smaller organisms and then moving into small animals and larger animals. Um, and, I, and remember that all of the animals that do go up there for research purposes actually also have adaptations to microgravity because they're used to gravity. So um, we learn a lot from those systems. Oh, and by the way, it says vice versa. So yes, a lot of things that we've learned uh, in space on humans is being transferred back to animals. And Dave's at UC, uh, UC Davis has a vet school uh, where Steve is, and I did my medical training there. And so we're both very fond of the veterinarians there, and we do exchange information a lot. So yes, the information transfers back to benefiting animals as well. Actually, Sometimes medical technology is tested on animals first before it migrates to humans and then to astronauts. Yeah. Notice how I made it differentiate between humans and astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually is the typical research model that, that we, we leverage those models first. Although, let me just explain. There's, space is also driving new models. So there's a whole concept of organs on a chip where we can actually create models on chips where you can 
simulate what an organ would do or what a cell would do uh, if you exposed it to certain things, such as radiation or such as infection, et cetera. So we're actually developing new models that aren't really dependent on an animal or a human um, because we're creating new methodologies. So that's another example. The organ on a chip concept is something that I think would be interesting for you to, to read about. You'll hear a little bit about it in one of our lectures later in the series. You want to go? That's a, no, that's one for you, but it's an excellent question. What level of risk is acceptable? And um, the context here is potential medical devices, but really that applies to everything. Yeah. What level of risk is acceptable when you decide to go to space at all? How do you answer that as an individual? Because you made that choice multiple times. I felt in the end that the pursuit of um, of the human race's uh, endeavors in space and the kind of research that we can do to benefit life on earth was worth my life. Wow. So that is the calculation that in, in, in the shuttle area you had to make. There was about a one in 90 chance that you weren't coming home. Wow. Wow. Well, that is an amazing statement to make. And thank you for your, <laughs> for taking that risk because uh, we've learned a lot from the missions that you were on. You said something to me earlier today about as we build these more autonomous systems or these device dependent or automated systems, it's much like the idea of, are you going to trust the vaccine? Are you going to trust an autonomously driven car? So I'd love to have you, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your thoughts on the the trust, because you work a lot in human and machine interface. We, we really look at a lot of the integration of, of how humans work, work with machines. We, we think of, we're engineers, I guess, and, um, and we think of the humans with the machines, whether they're in the machine or separate from the machine, that they're very, very integrated. The machine um, arises from the ideas and dreams of humans and uh, operated by the humans, or programmed by the humans, designed, maintained, um, used, misused by humans. Um, so we look at, in, in my research program and a lot of you know, space research, we look at the, the, the machinery, the subsystems, especially the life support systems, the spacesuits and the humans as a system together. Well, part of that is the psychological dependency that includes something called trust, which mm. means something kind of different to everybody else, to each person. And uh, since, since we don't have trust meters on our forehead, <laughs> it is a very difficult thing to know. Mm-hmm. It's becoming in a way more complicated because now we have learning systems and learning systems can learn from its own experience, can learn from uh, specific kinds of training, can learn from directed uh, data sets that we build and say, you need to be able to do this, can learn by watching what humans do. Once you have a system that's learned something when are you ready to really send it out and make um, do some operations and maybe even make critical decisions upon which the mission and maybe your and other lives depend? It's a very difficult, complicated question. Well, a lot of us are working on this right now. Well, I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to try to measure. Um, it, it's also something that human to human that trust of going back to the team dynamics. Um, how is that assessed? That actually leads us to this question that we have on the screen right now. 
Are there people who possess certain physical qualities? I would throw in there also probably, um, you know, uh, behavioral science qualities that make them better suited for space travel. Can, can you talk to the, the trust between humans, since you've been talking about between humans and machine, um, and maybe even examples of how did they screen for that? And I'll pick up on a couple of physical ones. Astronaut screening has been evolving right along with the space program. You know, it started out the earliest astronauts and the earliest cosmonauts were military test pilots because mm-hmm. it was extremely dangerous and they had to, you know, make decisions very quickly. Um, that ha- obviously has changed. You know, spaceflight um, has a lot more to do with research, although really good test pilots turn out to be very good researchers too. They're able to think in advance. And um, so that's always been a part, I, I guess, of astronaut selection. Um, working as a team, it's obviously important. Uh, physical endurance, kind of obviously important. Uh, there's some aspects of the job that can be very, very difficult, very challenging uh, to the health. Uh, but for long duration spaceflight, we are learning all the time still about the physiological challenges of doing being in uh, sustained microgravity. And now we're talking about going where the radiation is is uh, a, a dangerous mystery is the best way I would put that. And there's some people who say, no, we, we can't go unless we're shielded. And other people say, no, no, it's not going to be nearly that kind of kind of risk. That's a pretty big span of opinion there. So um, about physical qualities, you've got to be able to exercise in space. That is very well known and very well proven. So that leads to some interesting um, challenges and restrictions. If you're going to spend a couple hours per day exercising, that's a couple of hours, very extremely valuable hours that you're not spending on the main reason you're in space, whatever that is. Um, you have to have exercise equipment that takes up volume, that takes up mass, and um, it tends to be worked pretty hard. It breaks. So now it's got to be repairable by the astronauts. It takes more time. It generates um, heat. Um, and that space station behind me there, you can't really see the, mm-hmm. you see solar arrays. But there's other things that stick out, and those are actually radiators. Because when you generate heat through exercise or anything else, you have to get rid of it some, somehow. What about all that CO2 you generate when you're exercising on, on some sort of machine? Well, you're trapped in a can, so everybody gets treated to your CO2 pulse. So your life support systems have to be able to deal with um, exercise-induced CO2. And so on and on and on. There's an awful lot of... Um, um, considerations. The last thing I'll say about astronaut qual- qualities are not really physical, but it's um, maybe it's emotional. It's adaptability. You have to you have to like being in new, often surprising situations. That's a very important part because that's kind of why you're going. Why are we going in space to be surprised, basically, to find out things we never knew before? And if you're a person who's comfortable and actually you know, searches out that kind of um, that kind of experience. That's that's a good thing for astronauts to be. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just jump in on the end of that question with with a, a little bit of a controversy, and that is, you know, I think you we see people 
obvious, I think some of the things are obvious. We want someone who doesn't have uh, prior chronic disease history and might need more medical management or end up with, you know, obviously more discomfort or uh, crises while they're traveling. But the other is you want to also take people who enjoy doing hard work because you're going to have to maintain your body. Not that they just got themselves into a physically fit state, but that they're going to be willing and disciplined to carry that on. Uh, and as Steve said, they have a lot of other commitments. So you really got to fit it in. Um, but if you don't do that, the consequences are really untoward. And the other thing I would say is that risk prediction from a genomic standpoint. And this has long been taboo because People who work that hard to get into the astronaut corps and train for so long to get to fly, they don't want to be disqualified. And so they actually don't want people to find out reasons they shouldn't fly. These are highly motivated people and they don't want to be disqualified. And we don't actually know how to use a lot of the genomic information. We don't know. Uh, we can say that with certain diseases, very few, that you have this percentage chance of expressing it to this level or this severity, but we don't, for most genes, we don't have that kind of information. So there's been a real hesitancy to do genomic testing of any kind or genetic testing in astronauts. However, when we start looking at these three-year missions where it's going to be really, really important to, to the astronaut to know more about what their underlying risks are, even to understand what kinds of medications they may or may not tolerate. So we know which ones to pack. If you don't have cytochrome P450 and you can't metabolize certain drugs, there's no point sending that one for you. You'll need some other kind. So there are advantages to knowing more uh, with, with that kind of information, but I can say it's a, it's a touchy area right now. So when you talk about who's qualified, there's a whole bit of data that we're not privy to yet. We don't even know how to use it, frankly. We, we know the astronaut when we meet them, and, and we know a little bit about their history in terms of their education and their work experience, and then their fitness level, and we try to optimize that. But there's that whole other family history, et cetera, that we don't know much about. How many of you in the audience are um, medical professionals? Just raise your hand if you are. Okay, good, good. I'm sure you can teach us, you could teach us about uh, your specialty, but um, many of you are not from the medical uh, world. That's an important thing to bring out because this is a team sport. Uh, space health, remote medical management for Earth. We need all disciplines at the table. Uh, so I'm actually glad to see there's a range of people in the audience. A um, couple more questions here. Uh, might the qualities of crew members on a Mars mission be different than that of near-Earth missions? We bring up a really interesting point, and I didn't get to it tonight because there was a bit of information to cover. But um, one of the restrictions that has been different for men than women is a long time ago, there was a cap put on women for the number of uh, hours or days in space based on radiation risk. Um, and it just got lifted. It, and, and so what was going to happen was the experienced women astronauts, none of them would qualify for a Mars mission because the duration of that mission would have been beyond with, with any baseline time they had already spent in space was beyond what they would allow. 
that just got changed and it's really going to be men or women. They'll, they'll have the same cap in terms of risk of radiation. We actually know so little about exposure to the types of radiation that are going to be outside of low earth orbit, um, that there's much to be worked out there. But so, so it's no longer that, uh, it would be men dying than women. Um, I think there are going to have to be people who absolutely, as Steve said, uh, can adapt, but can tolerate adversity and can tolerate confinement and who can have great interpersonal skills because there are going to be three people in a very small spacecraft for a really long time. I think I mentioned I didn't make it clear, but it's going to be probably seven to nine months just to get to Mars. And then there'll be a period of time of working on the surface because they can't just come right back. They've got to wait for the uh, ideal orbital timing to get back. So it's basically going to be predicted to be a three-year mission. I'm sure you all looked at uh, Perseverance's landing the other day. And um, when you look at those those early pictures, there was a great self-portrait of, of, of the rover uh, that was released this morning, pretty high high def. And um, you can find it on the JPL website. But when you look out there in the background, you sort of have to ask yourself, would I like to live there for a year and a half? And, you know, not everybody's going to say yes. Not even all astronauts will say yes. So that's one thing. Uh, some people love that kind of challenge and environment and that awayness from home. And some, some people aren't, aren't going to sign up for that. Um, what you don't want is somebody who thinks they love it and find out they don't. <laughs> and we don't know how to predict that, do we? Mm. I kind of think that people, Mars missions, uh, crews for a Mars mission need to be even more so than on ISS, kind of generalists. Mm. They really need to be people who can learn quickly, do new things. Right. Um, I, you know, they've always picked, you know, the best test pilots and PhDs and, um, for astronauts, but in many ways, I think if you just picked a track, tractor mechanic and a doctor, I think you'd be well on your way. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to grab this last question, uh, not to answer myself, but it's such an important one, and we've got three minutes left. Uh, are there aspects of space research that can benefit the environment, help issues like climate change and different types of pollution? This is a really exciting one to me. So first of all, you see the power panels back there. So solar panels and solar power has been really optimized by the space program, but also reusing, recycling, recycling even uh, the body's waste products in highly efficient ways and highly efficient use of water. So because of the constrained resource environment of space, it's it really is an ideal proving ground for a lot of sustainability models that we need to implement more on Earth. Um, and then in terms of climate change, I think some of our best information is coming from NASA science programs in terms of, of the impact of climate change. There's a really old satellite up there called the Aqua that was designed to pick up on different changes in water patterns around the globe at the same time and how a change in rainfall here versus evaporation on the other side 
Um, I only know of this because a friend of mine was the satellite designer and I was going through cancer treatment. So she put my name on a Kevlar patch on the aqua. So I, I'm still up there somewhere. As as close as I'll get, Steve. That's great. <laughs> I'm not still up there. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, what a great way to answer for this person. What's that? Did you want to chime in on the on the environmental or the climate change? Uh, oh, it's one of the main reasons we go to space is to study yeah. the Earth. That's what I, when I talk to kids, I yeah. say there's two main reasons to go to space: study humans and to study our home. Uh, and uh, you know, having been involved, most people have been to space have been involved in some sort of um, you know Earth study. I know I was on a shuttle mission where we had a a large satellite, about an eight-ton satellite. It was a collaboration between the United States and Germany, and it had an infrared uh, telescope on it, highly cooled with uh, liquid helium, and it was a reusable satellite. So we took it out in the space shuttle. I picked it up with the robot arm, pulled it out, and let it go. And what it did is it looked at Earth's atmosphere on edge through what we call the Earth's limb and sorted out the layers um, of uh, infrared um, uh, energy in concert with a very large campaign of aircraft on Earth at the very same time. So I forgot how many aircraft, there were like 16 different aircraft and sounding rockets and stuff like this with us supporting from above with the satellite. And then after a few days, uh, you know, it was a very, very expensive piece of equipment. Normally it would just get launched and then eventually run out of liquid helium and get thrown away. Nope, we went back, rendezvoused with it, drove the space shuttle right up next to it, and it reached out with the arm and grabbed it and put it back in the shuttle and brought it back home. Wow. wow. That's fantastic. What a great note to end on. I like that story. I'm, we're going to hear more stories from Dr. Robinson, so that's a, that was really a great introduction. I'm, I'm going to thank the audience for staying in this late in the evening, and I can't thank Steve, enough uh, sharing these stories and this conversation with us um, and helping launch this, this seminar series in the, the UC Space Health Program. We're going to wrap it up now, and uh, hopefully you'll join us again. Steve. It's, a, it's a very exciting thing to be in the mini, mini med school series. We've been wanting to do this for a while. We'll do it again next year when we can all gather, because this audience that comes to these is very interactive. So we're feeling it from both sides. But Thank you, everybody, for adapting, as Steve says, and participating. Everyone stay well, stay safe. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.